1: on today's entrepreneur. Welcome to this program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller. Good evening, Josh. Hello, Dan. And this evening on the program, we'll be chatting with Carolyn DeLuca of Delfab. Delfab, they, uh, they're in the textile business, but
2: they focus on the healthcare industry, so all those scrubs and, and all that stuff that you see on, that hopefully not too many people see, but all too many people see on the doctors and
1: nurses, that's uh, part of their focus. Not all their focus, but half their focus. Interesting. So uh, she is coming up. Uh, But first, as usual, some entrepreneurial news of the day. And uh, I thought we'd start off by talking a little bit about uh, celebrity endorsements and um, whether or not they work. We never chatted about this in the program, and uh, I figured uh, this story is kind of fun. Uh, Blue Jay star Jose Bautista, this is from the Globe and Mail. Uh, is going to be a spokesperson for uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch and Golden Grahams and some other cereals in the General Mills family. What do you think? Do these kind of, we remember back in the day, you know, we had the Wheaties boxes and everything. Do do these kind of celebrity endorsements uh, still work?
2: The Bruce slash
1: Caitlyn Jenner, uh,
2: you know, the cereals and all those advertisements. You know, the question is, do you have a budget for it? You know, the, we we deal with a lot of entrepreneurs. We deal. We don't necessarily deal with all these large multinational companies. The question is, can you infor- and can you afford it? There's no question that if you have the right celebrity, you can absolutely build your brand to an nth degree. It would be great to have, you know, uh, you know a Georges St. Pierre emphasize any Quebec brand, you know, because he's such a a, a great name and a well-known, well, well-recognized name. The question is, what would he charge? What would all these celebrities charge so that you can get your brand out there? I think it's a it's a dollars and cents question. You know, when you're dealing with Post and Kellogg and and these large companies that are selling these cinnamon toast crunch, I think their budgets for marketing are quite large. The question is, when, you, when you're an entrepreneur and you have a limited amount of marketing resources, what do you do? Celebrities, while great, are not necessarily always the most economical. So do you have to find a rising star and say, hey, you know what, he's cheap now
1: or she's cheap now and kind of roll with it? Maybe so in an entrepreneurial world. Not to mention the fact that sometimes uh, celebrities misbehave, and sometimes uh, that's not the best thing for uh, for your brand too. We've seen this a lot in sports as well. You know, celebrities getting caught, or sports stars getting caught uh, using performance-enhancing uh, uh, substances. We heard, we saw this during the NFL draft, of course. That video of uh, one uh, draft prospect came out when he was smoking something on on camera. Yeah,
2: you, ha- you have to be ready for it. I mean, even if even if you had you know New England Patriots, you know, DeflateGate. And you have Tom Brady as your sponsor, but yet he's involved in this, in this scan, this supposed, or the this, this literal scandal of Deflategate. He's still a great name and he still endorses a great product because it's such an unknown. You know, like I'm sure you're going to talk about later. If you had PKP, if you had Pierre Carpelle out there endorsing your brand and he's out there, he's getting divorced, he's, he's, he's not running for, for office anymore. You know, it's still a name that could work for you. The question is, What's the return on investment? Do the dollars that you invest really return the sales and revenue that you expect?
1: Finally, uh, also uh, in Ontario, a few cities now uh, calling on the, the province to ban door-to-door sales uh, for a bunch of reasons. One, they say the most important, uh, the most crucial is to say that sometimes the practice uh, can victimize vulnerable people. Um, but in, in general, what do you think about the, the tactic of, of not only going door-to-door, but even calling people up at their home and during supper time? Do, do these sales tactics work anymore? For me, no. It's it's honestly
2: as simple as that. The number of times that we get called during dinner or even afterwards, uh, whether my wife, it's my kids, whatever, and they say, you know, we got called at 6, at 7. They say, okay, no, Mr. Miller's not home. You know, call back later, and then they call back later, and then we answer, and then they come back, and they say, you know what? I even answer sometimes, say, don't call me back, and they still do. So the question is, be respectful of the ultimate consumer. If you if if you really anger them if you piss them off you know well then you're not going to get any business later on so are people home at dinner time do they, are they able to answer the phone yes but is it the best time to call them i'm not so convinced you know my, you know with with all these with all these call centers around the world there must be better times to call there must be times during the day at the office at work there must be a Ways to get different phone numbers that you can call them and not disturb
1: the family time. Don't disturb the family time and you're good to go. Hmm. And eventually maybe one day we'll have a conversation about email and maybe that will become too invasive. But for now, I guess anything goes via email.
2: Well, until you 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 have junk mail and you can spam and you don't necessarily have to return it. And you can sift through all the all the junk mail, what have you. Uh, I think that's uh, that might not be as direct because I do believe the talking, the in person, can never be replaced. But of course, if you're limited, then you have to resort to email.
1: This is a very cool idea. Different kind of car sharing company, uh, Turo. Uh, this peer-to-peer car rental company launching uh, in three provinces, including Quebec. You know, with all the
2: all the hype and all all the. Hel- you know, hullabaloo about Uber and certainly in Quebec and, and getting, you know, pulled over and cars impounded and trying to find an economical way to travel. No question that this car rental sharing app had to come to pass. Everybody rents from these car rental sharing companies, you know, the Avises and the budgets and the nationals and the Hertz's and all that. The question is so many of our cars sit idle so much of the time, how much, can you get out of it or what is the what is the the market out there to get your own car out there? Of course, then there's the question of question of insurance. Hmm. There's no doubt about it. If you're gonna rent your car out to a third party, will your insurance cover you if there's an accident? And I think that's really the hiccup behind all this. Now there are certain companies out there that are covering it, the Bel Airs of the world. There's no question that, that that there's a market out there and for the smart insurance companies, they're gonna cover things that they don't that they're not used to. That they're not accustomed to, but that's absolutely out there. The question is, as a consumer, if you're going to rent out your car, you better make sure you're covered because that accident's coming sooner or later.
1: I love the story. This, uh, you know, fashion is obviously adapting with the times. And now we have a company that is uh, specializing in accessible clothing.
2: Accessible clothing. What does accessible clothing mean? This article that I read was actually, I was really endeared to it. I was fascinated by it because it was accessible clothing to handicapped individuals, whether you're in a wheelchair, whether you're too short, too small, too too fat, too large, and not not because of dietary issues, not like me, of course, Dan, but of course of, you know, because of genetics and that you, you know, you you have some some limbs that are different or some size issues or or whatever have you, there are companies out there. This particular company is catering to the handicap. We talk about social responsibility a lot. This company Social responsibility plus doing something that it can be profitable for something else, I think that's a win-win for everybody.
1: Leon's Furniture is uh, sort of adapting to the social media uh, era? L- L- furniture companies, they're, they're tough. I
2: mean, there's there's so much competition. The logistics and the amount of inventory they have to carry is huge. How do they stay in front of the customer? Customers aren't walking into the stores all the time they you know when you buy a couch when you buy a, a dining room table you're not buying one every month you're not buying one every year you're buying one every every 5 years every 10 years every 15 years how do you stay in front of the customer so they go in front of you in this particular case leon said you know what i know they got to come and they got to feel the furniture and they got to test the fabric and all that but at least let them see the look let the, let the millennials that love this disposable issues these this disposable product you know let them at least see what it looks like and then through an instagram program say hey that looks awesome let me walk into that store we always talk about retailers and the why of walking into the store instagram and the creation of the pictorials that they create create that reason why people should walk into that store
1: today's entrepreneur on cjad800 we'll chat with carolyn DeLuca of DelFab coming up in just a couple of minutes on the program
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau. Chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: Coming up to 7.20 on today's Entrepreneur Inspiring Stories from Outstanding Business People, Dan Delmar and F.L. Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you. And Josh, this evening we're joined by Carolyn DeLuca of Delfab. Carolyn, welcome to CJD.
3: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: So first question, always the easiest. Tell us about yourself and about uh, Delfab.
3: So... Delfab is a company that's been around for 40 years. We are importers of textile-based products. I guess that's very broad (laughs) to say. Uh, If I were to focus it down, I would say we are importing healthcare textiles, uh, items that you would find in hospitals and long-term care facilities. And we touch institutional textiles as well. And we do some items for retail. Uh, And I'm the sales director of the business. It's family-owned.
2: Now... This You said this business has been around for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you have not been around for 40 years. I know it's radio. (laughs) Nobody can see. But you're rather youthful looking. Not Mm -hmm. as youthful looking as Dan, perhaps, but pretty darn close. (laughs) And so, when did you... This is a family business. So, did you live, eat, breathe this business as you were growing
3: up? Uh, To a certain degree, I would say yes. There was never a pressure to join. Uh, But I did get to spend some summers working with my father. um, And I did spend a lot of time in the office on days off from school, and I really enjoyed what I saw. So when I was in university, originally, I thought I'd be going off and doing something else with my life. And as the years came to a close, I said, this seems like something I want to do. So it was actually a bit of a surprise when I turned around to my father and said I wanted to join the business. But with the experience that I had leading up to it. And he saw that I had a flair for what we did. uh, He was encouraging of the fact that I wanted to join.
2: Did you ever think that maybe you should gain experience in another company in some different environment before actually starting outright in the family business?
3: There was that decision-making process. Uh, When I graduated in 2009, the recession had just hit us pretty hard. Uh, Lehman Brothers had went bust. And everyone in my graduating year with an undergrad degree was looking at call center jobs, if you were looking at anything Mm -hmm. in banking or finance or HR. And I did. I considered it seriously. Uh, I really wanted to work with people, so I was considering human relations. Uh, but at that point, I figured why spend the next few years doing something that won't allow me to learn, won't allow me to practice when what ultimately I do want to try. So why delay the process a decade when I can just get in there and get my feet wet and you know, take hit the ground running?
2: Now, you're talking about you, you were in the healthcare, you're in the healthcare field from a textile standpoint. Yes. What does that mean exactly?
3: Well, we, okay. Um, there's different parts of textiles in the healthcare field. There's what people would consider smart textiles or very sophisticated textiles that are used in treating people. Uh, we're more in the commodity based sector, which is uh, linens, scrubs, scrubs. <laughs> uh, patient That's what people wear.
2: hear, you know, they see the sitcom, they hear everything. It's scrubs. <laughs>
3: it's scrubs. It's doctor scrubs. It's patient linens. Uh, it's what you're lying on when you go to the hospital. When you're cold you get the extra blanket we're the supplier of that blanket so that's what healthcare textiles is on a very broad level we
1: all need it eventually uh, carolyn de Luca of delphab joining us this evening on today's entrepreneur more in just a moment
0: for professional advice with a personal touch consult fl fuller landau chartered professional accountants and business advisors click on flmontreal.com.
1: 7.25 on CJD 800. This evening on Today's Entrepreneur, we're joined by Carolyn DeLuca of Delfab. Uh, they do textiles for the healthcare sector. How is it, uh, Carolyn, uh, dealing with uh, with governments uh, and uh, and those kinds of organizations?
3: Well, it's interesting. It's taken us the better part. Uh, we forayed into the healthcare industry probably about 10 years ago at a wholesale level where we were selling to um, people who may be even considered some of our competitors now um, who are buying in us from us in bulk. Uh, they were looking for importers and we provided that service because they didn't know how to do the, do that themselves. Um, but then dealing with the government became something that we looked at because we wanted to go to the end user directly. And there was a lot of red tape. There was uh, standards to follow, uh, protocol to implement at work. It, uh, it was challenging, but not impossible. And uh, I would say, like I said, it was a challenge, but not too hard. And We had a good time doing it.
2: (laughs) Did did you have to get involved in now more of the tendering process with public institutions?
3: Yes, we did. Uh, That's the main process of purchasing, at least in Quebec, a little bit so in the rest of Canada as well, but it's a call to tender. So if you're supplying these hospitals in this province, uh, you have to be chosen by the government body. So there are buying groups that are in place uh, that have standards for the products we sell. Uh, We have to... It be we have to abide by those standards, we get tested, and then uh, if you're price competitive and if your product meets quality control, uh, you are then chosen to supply for the next few years.
2: Big learning curve? I mean, you guys didn't always do this, you didn't always deal with the government, so is it a big learning curve with this, as I said, tendering process before?
3: A huge learning curve. I mean, our customers before were seasonal, and we created a new product for them um on a monthly basis and we were looking at changing every six months and now it became how do you implement production of something that has to be to spec every single time you can't have a mistake otherwise you're dealing with the consequences of the fact that these are patients using your product and uh so definitely a huge learning curve
2: now you're you're buying your product you're you're from where
3: um, so we're importing mostly from Pakistan, India, China. Uh, those would be the three major players uh, for that typical industry because we're looking at commodity-based products that have to be price competitive.
2: Now, as you're going through this tendering process, and I'm just trying to follow the logic. The logic here is you're you're trying to get the best price. You're trying to put in the best tender. You need to have the right quality product because there are certain. Minimums or factors or parameters that you have to follow.
3: Absolutely. How
2: strict do you have to be with your suppliers and how much does that come into play when selecting your suppliers and dealing with them?
3: Uh, absolutely. I mean, anyone can go out to a tender and say, I have the best price. And then when it comes to actually producing and shipping the product, what you're getting on your doorstep is not at all what you're actually expecting to receive so we have to have strict quality control practices in place uh we do a lot of sampling before we even choose a supplier uh we don't always have only one supplier per product we make sure we have alternative sources so in the event of uh problems just with uh, you know timing or in terms of production load uh lead times we have to be able to source elsewhere because we can't have back orders you're penalized for that kind of thing do you ever
2: have to fly in product
3: it happens. It's extremely expensive, expensive to do so. That's what everybody says. No one likes to do it, um, but it has to happen if you're servicing your client and you want to make sure you get them the product on time.
2: Now, you, you talk about quality control. Mm-hmm. How much is in in Canada versus on the ground overseas?
3: Um, it's, I would say, a 50% in both places. I mean, what we're talking about is we have people who work as either third-party quality control uh, or people under our employee that we have asked to do that, that you know we're paying to do this service for us, um, so they're dealing with at a macro level the production process looking that everything goes smoothly, but once it comes here we 're going into the detailed analysis with local facilities like a uh, CTT. Uh,
2: are there are these quality control people that are overseas? where they have they been with you a long time? Or are they tough to find? Uh,
3: they're tough to find. They're, it's tough to find good ones. Uh, we've been dealing with some of the same factories for some some of them for over twenty five years now. Um, and those are the relationships we really like to encourage, and that's where we like to give our business because those are the people you can trust. Um, you know, with inventions like Alibaba, for example, which is a big importing website, importers around will understand what I'm saying. Uh, anyone will say I can produce this product for you, but at the end of the day, you have such an inconsistency in quality control that that's not who you want to do business with.
2: And there's no doubt that people on the ground overseas is hugely important. We'll continue to talk. It's absolutely fascinating, always, in dealing with overseas. And when we come back from the break, we'll chat a little bit more about that.
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult FL Fuller Landau, Chartered Professional Accountants and Business Advisors. Click on flmontreal.com. 7.36
1: 7.36 on Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with FL Fuller Landau's Josh Miller, and our guest tonight is Carolyn DeLuca of Delfab. They make a textile products for... Uh, the healthcare sector, and it's a pretty uh, interesting uh, area, Josh, especially when you have to sort of deal with not only suppliers overseas, but uh, come back here and deal with some very stringent government standards. uh. Question, but, you know, as Carolyn
2: was saying before, you know, dealing with China and Pakistan, Bangladesh... Was there an easier country to do business with, you know, harder? Do you find it all the same? I know there's quality control issues uh, and there's people on the ground issues. Do you find, did you find that one country was just easier or harder than the other?
3: Um, I would say they all have their specialties in terms of what they do. So if you go to um, that country for the product they are known for, you shouldn't have too many issues. Um, they, we've had... We've had issues when it's come to finalized products, you know, finished products for the textile industry. We see that it's a little easier sometimes to bring in raw merchandise, raw fabric, uh, which would come from Pakistan. Uh, the products where we have a little bit more trouble, sometimes we would see from China because they have a little bit uh, of a more finished element to them. Yeah. Uh,
2: it's, it really depends on the country and who you have on the ground. and Exactly. And, but you really, bottom line is you got to take control. You got to be on the ground. You got to figure out, like you said, there's quality control that was half here in Canada. Right. And half there. You got to make sure that 100%, whatever's here and there is really, really working out. Exactly. Let's switch gears a little bit. Marketing. You know, you, you, you said, I, I think you mentioned earlier that, You went from, you weren't always fully or, you know, in the healthcare as much as you were. You had a transition. Mm -hmm. Where was that switching point?
3: Uh, The switching point came, like I said, about a decade ago when we realized we were very strong in fashion before. And we realized that with the way the tariffs had changed in this country and importing became so much easier, it was harder and harder for manufacturers locally who were buying fabric from us uh, to do business with us. So we started to look to other areas. And that's when that switch happened because healthcare came with a product that was something we can do consistently. Uh, So
2: diversification. Exactly. You you couldn't stay in the one area. You kind of reinvented yourself.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It was a total reinvention. We were doing products for Misty clothing before. It was fabric that was printed. It was 100% cotton. And now you're going into an area where you're dealing with polyesters and different compositions of fabric. And before you're bringing in rolls of fabric, and now you're bringing in a finished garment.
2: Is it a question of competition? Did you have more competition before when you were in fashion, a little bit less in healthcare? Or does it still exist today? Uh,
3: what's interesting is that the people who were doing fashion or that kind of Textile product in Montreal before. We're also looking for different areas to do business. So we've seen a few of them switch over to healthcare as well. There is a lot of competition in this province when it comes to healthcare textiles. But the tendering process kind of weeds out who uh, the people who can't necessarily do it properly or don't have the means in place to really get to that market.
2: Would you say it's a barrier of entry, I mean, barrier to entry, if, if you're in the textile business, you want to start selling to these large hospital institutions or whatever government institutions. Mm-hmm. Would you say if you don't have that knowledge, that tendering knowledge, what, what it takes to produce the right uniform or mm-hmm. the right textile, is that is that a big learning curve?
3: Uh, definitely. It took us quite a bit of time. The reason it took us the better part of 10 years before we started really going direct was because we had to teach ourselves that process. So we had to learn the product first to make sure we got it right, because there was no mistake that went into the tendering process. If you didn't go in with the right item, uh, you would have issues being selected. So we had to get the product right first, then we had to go in at a small level, uh, start going direct to people who could purchase at from us directly and who weren't covered by the red tape of this province and then start hitting the tenders once we knew we knew what we were doing
2: you are in a family business and as family businesses dan as we've spoken with many entrepreneurs before there's a transition issue there's the 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 father mother daughter son granddaughter grandson that comes about how is that transition for you? Or how is that? Because I know it's still ongoing.
3: Yes.
2: Uh, you know, you're still youthful at heart, as as both Dan and I are, no doubt, even though both of you are younger than me. But the, that's besides <laughs> the point right now on radio. You Nobody can see. Uh, but the question is, from a transition standpoint or from a role standpoint, how do you and I believe your, your father that started this mm-hmm. or is heavily involved in this, how does that play in your, in your roles?
3: The understanding is... Uh, it's easy for us because there's a mutual understanding. He is in charge. I am here to learn because he wants to encourage me. Are you good with that? I am. I think that's actually, I, it's been the best education I've ever had. I've been saying, I've been paid to go to school for the past seven years. He's a wonderful mentor, and there's no need for me to prove that I can do better. Uh, he wants me to do better. So there's that constant encouragement. He's very open to my ideas. Um, he really. Ugh, I, I, I just there's no words sometimes to describe the fact of how lucky I am because of that fact that it's very easy going between us. He treats me like an equal.
2: Do you think you have different styles, or have, do you share the same style of running a company?
3: Uh we do have different styles if you're looking from the outside in but fundamentally we usually end up meeting at the same point. His is probably just a little bit more there's a bit more wisdom to it. There's a bit more caution. He has more experience and seen things that We well, might
2: have grayer hair. Shorter <laughs> shorter hair, grayer hair.
3: I can just dye mine, you know, that's a yeah. different. <laughs>
2: had it too you know (laughs) the curves might be have to be in a different spaces but that's okay
3: but you know the difference just being that I would probably be a little bit more impatient where he would proceed with caution um so it's a good mechanism in place for him to kind of calm me down when I'm trying to
2: that's actually a really interesting aspect do you find that sometimes because you're so eager you want to jump too early
3: definitely sometimes I would jump and fall flat on my face if he wasn't there to really put the hold on and say well think it through um, so he definitely, it's great having him around. I hope he doesn't go anywhere anytime soon.
2: <laughs> He's listening. I'm sure he won't go anywhere. <laughs> now, now there must also be, uh, you know, a team around you, smaller, large. How much do you rely on the, on the people around you as well?
3: Uh, we're a well-oiled machine with, if there's one person missing it in small business, it affects operations completely. Uh, we are a small amount of people in the office, but we also depend very strongly on, uh, the agents and the salespeople that are not under our direct employee, but you know, who work as agents for us, uh, we need them because without them, we wouldn't be able to do what we do.
2: You were talking about competition before and how, you know, that certainly with the change and, you know, getting into the, the, that healthcare sector, is there, is there certain marketing issues that you face? Are there, how do you get your name out there? How do you make sure that you're recognized?
3: (laughs) It's interesting because in a world that's so modern with IT and websites and advertising, textiles is an industry where it's still word of mouth, it's reference, it's knocking on doors. I spent a lot of my first years just making cold calls and showing up at trade shows, uh, making those in-person connections and shaking hands. Uh, And the idea being word of mouth, you do well with one customer, it's an industry. They'll refer you to their friend who's doing the same thing at the next hospital or the next laundry. So... uh, Does that
2: mean you don't feel you have to do some specific outward marketing website and all that?
3: Um, There is that consideration, and it's something that we're looking for towards in the future of how we can implement that and actually get uh, a return on that investment. Um, But it's... It's difficult to see because we're not sure. We're not really an e-commerce type of business. We're selling items in bulk and we're uh, selling something that's pre-standardized, right? So there's not much I can necessarily say except for my servicing tactics when it comes to marketing. And that's usually what we push is how we can offer a customized service.
1: Carolyn DeLuca joins us from Delphi this evening. In a few minutes, uh, we'll hear her one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. But next, we'll have Kevin Ammerman, IT specialist, talk about mergers, demergers, bringing companies together, and then bringing that IT aspect together as well.
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.
1: Coming up to 7.50 on Today's Entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and FL Fuller-Landau's Josh Miller with you. Our guest this evening, Carolyn DeLuca of Delfab. will have her one piece of advice for Today's Entrepreneur on the way. But first, joining us again is Kevin Ammerman, IT specialist with FL. And Kevin, uh, thanks for joining us for again. And we're here to talk about not only mergers and demergers, but to sort of the back end of that and how that can affect your IT systems. And even the small details like, uh, you know, for example, uh, email signatures, you know, that the Details like that are important to uh, to put into place when you uh, when you merge companies, I guess. And uh, I've had to change many signatures over the years. And those little details are important for company's
4: image. Exactly. So these little details they carry on, and it's it really helps to sort of sit down in advance and and uh, t- take it seriously to look at the costs of what uh, merging or demerging is going to be for your company. So not only the the signatures and the little technical details like that, but the the bigger pieces like the the value of the of the software and the licensing that you're the company that you're merging with, like what do they actually have on hand? Does it match up with sort of what you're expecting and what you're using in your own environment? And trying to figure out, the, the, first of all, the straight up licensing cost, how much you're going to have to pay to bring new people on board, and secondly, how are you going to integrate those systems? I think the matching is actually kind of key. You know,
2: you have a you have a couple of companies that want to merge, and whether one is you know microsoft based and one is mac based or or whatever softwares you have in you really do have to plan are there what what if it is a mac based versus a pc based system does does one take over is, is it a question of discussing it and figuring out which softwares are most important how does that work in that kind of merger
4: it's really really a good question because sometimes you'll have the same product but you'll have very different paths to get there so trying to look at the culture the the, the way that the people are using the software are they using specific tools that really only work on one platform or another? Or are they using specific software? So, for example, um, it it's hasn't been too long that even something as simple as Microsoft Word simply has not worked on Macs very well. Um, and it's only recently that things are sort of starting to come come together and, and bring those worlds together. So if you look at design or if you look at uh, even accounting, it's, it's pretty tough to find a decent accounting software that runs on a Mac these days. and And from the other end, from the graphics world, Um, there were a lot of tools available on Apple computers that weren't available on PCs until pretty recently. So as I say, recently, it's starting to come together a little bit more. But when it comes time to sort of look at how your business fits with another business, you really have to look close at those softwares and the processes and the way that you get the job done. What about
2: the compatibility of the hardware between, again, we're talking about a merger and two two separate locations and two separate hardwares. And of course, the software has to come into it. And I'm talking like almost like I sound like I know what I'm talking about, but I really don't. I'm just really going to a question of when you're in two different locations and the mergers and it's really two different sets of equipment, Are how big are the challenges? What do the people have to think of first?
4: the The distance isn't as big a problem as it used to be, and that's where with my internet history, I kind of I have fun with that. I, I like putting those things together for for clients. Um the hardware itself, the whole Mac versus PC thing, again, it's not as big a problem as it used to be. But trying to get on board with the way the companies communicate and sort of the attitudes, uh, the amounts of communication that they have between the management and the employees and just the expectations of everybody that's trying to get a job done and and the information that they need to get that job done so it's not so much purely communication but the um, CRM or ERP systems trying to merge those things and the, the fundamental tools that you use to get the job done so maybe you've got a specific piece of software that you really need to get that job done and it's a different flavor than the company you're merging with yeah, there's always going to be a little bit of a battle. And you've got to, as, as a business owner or manager, you have to sit down, evaluate the tools that are being used in both offices and, and make sure that you choose the right one going forward.
1: More on IT questions with Kevin Ammerman in a moment. Plus, we'll have Carolyn DeLuca's one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur that's next. 7.56 on Today's Entrepreneur. We're joined by Carolyn DeLuca of Delfab. We'll have her one piece of advice for Today's Entrepreneur in a moment. First, Josh, talking about IT with Kevin Ammerman and uh, how you really have to uh, consider the, the back end and the tech side of the business when you bring companies together. And then there's not only, the, of
2: course, the software and the hardware, but there's the training. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people that, that understand one software, one aspect, and don't necessarily understand the other. How much of an importance does that role play
4: and how do you bridge that gap between the two from a training standpoint? It's really tricky and the the important thing is to get your employees to remember what the goal is, you know, the end product that you're trying to produce and not get too hung up on the tools. And this is even day-to-day, so it's not just during a merger, but even in your day-to-day operations, you gotta make sure that your employees you know, use the best tools that they have at hand and don't sort of fall into the trap of, I've gotta click twice here and then click over here and then do this to get this job done but take a look at what they're doing and, and make sure that they're sort of mapping it out. Is there also a question of, I hate to say, it, it's a, does size matter?
2: If you're, if you're merging two companies that are smaller sizes and going to a bigger one, is that something that companies have to think about saying, you know what, maybe these softwares that we're using that are good for the smaller
4: companies maybe don't necessarily fit for our larger merged entity? That can be a good thing or a bad thing. So if both companies are sort of on the same page and both, of the newly merged companies have to make that change to grow into a newer software. Sometimes that can be a real bonding thing and give you big opportunities to sort of put people in the right positions going forward, rather than being, than being stuck in old traps and trying to just retrain people and, and uh, shoehorn things together. And I guess when you're talking about different locations and merging companies,
2: and I know we didn't talk about demerging a lot because there's a lot more about merging, a lot more about consolidation these days and not. How does the cloud help you? You know very much and i i don't want to sound like it's so mystical i mean it's all most of our information is out there anyways but how much do the people that you know keeping their servers on their own system but yet merging two companies
4: together the cloud must benefit them to to a great degree it's a whole new set of tools and yeah it can be kind of convenient if you're if you're sort of merging two in-house companies and then moving to them to a cloud-based solution but where it gets a little bit more fun is if if one of the companies for example is already on the cloud trying to do a cloud to cloud move can be sometimes very tricky because the tools to do that just don't exist. Um, it, you end up having to do it in more of a two-step process. You've got to export it and then re-import it into the cloud rather than do it just directly.
2: Sounds like so much fun. <laughs> Anyhow, thanks a lot, Kevin. I know there's a, a ton to talk about, about consolidations and merges and all that. But as we approach our last moment of the show, we'll turn to Carolyn DeLuca of DelFab and ask you, Carolyn, what would be your one or two or three piece of, pieces of advice for today's entrepreneur?
3: Um, I would say that if you are an entrepreneur in a business where you see your sales changing in the sector you're currently selling to, definitely think outside the box. Don't be fearful of sh- do- doing something different what you're currently doing. People think that you, know, you have to be a one-trick pony in order to get the right type of uh, sales and to be able to be focused. You don't want to be everything to everybody, but I disagree. I think you should always have... One part of your business that's looking elsewhere so that you're ready for change, and then when that change starts to happen, uh, be patient with it, don't give up on it if you see it's not working right away. Because a little bit of patience pays off in the long run,
2: excellent. I think. And Dan, I look, I listen to Carolyn and I say, You know what? She's she came out of school, she knew that she didn't know everything, she wanted to learn about the business, and she really delved in. She didn't have a chip on her shoulders that. Some youthful people do these days. I won't mention names or anything, but I, but I think it's great that she has an open mind and learning from the previous generation and taking the best of all worlds. And I think entrepreneurs need to do that continuously is take the best of all worlds.
1: Carolyn DeLuca of Delfab, thanks very much for joining us this evening on Today's Entrepreneur. Thanks as well to Kevin Emmerman and Josh. We're back next Monday night at 7 p.m. here on Newstalk Radio CJAD 800. The Exchange with Liz Raveries next.
0: For professional advice with a personal touch, consult F.L. Fuller Landau, chartered professional accountants and business advisors. Click on flmontreal.com.